here we go in the strength of the Lord. Do you ever wish you were more bold? Do you ever just condemn yourself because of your lack of boldness? You see a group of young people and you're like, yes, yes, I want to say something to them. I'll never forget being in Leicester Square in England. And you know, Brian's so sweet. He's part of the band and he's gonna preach out loud and I'm going to support the band. And I, I just wanna, I wanna witness. And the whole way, you know, cause we had to walk over to Leicester Square from our church. I'm like, yes, I'm going to witness. I want to witness. And I'm standing there and, you know, I see this guy with a nose ring and, you know, some other scary things. And I'm like, Lord, just reach him. Reach him in your name. You know, it's so in my heart. But I find those times I want to be so bold for Jesus. I hate it in my own life when fear takes the wheel of the car. And I want to admit to you, I have not completely overcome my fears. Don't you hate it when they show up? You're like, what? I thought you were gone. I thought you were banished. I thought I drove the golden stake through your heart, fear. And here you are, and you're tormenting me in the same way. And fear screams at us, and it threatens us, and it whispers all sorts of different scenarios into our mind and heart. You do the will of God. You pray. You step out, and this is what's going to happen. You want to go through what Paul and Barnabas went through? You want that? Okay, just try being bold. And we get so afraid. There are those times when fear takes the will of our mind and our heart. And have you noticed that fear drives totally erratically? I mean, fear's like, ha, 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 and it's just ditching everything on the road. Have you noticed that fear does not know where it's going? It's just driving the car. Have you noticed how many innocent bystanders get hit by the car when fear is driving? Or how many wrong turns it makes? Or how it gets everything jumbled and creates chaos and traffic jams? That's what fear will do. Fear makes me feel so vulnerable to all the elements in this world. Vulnerable to rules and regulations and kings and, and people and riots and jail and authority. It keeps me from enjoying and embracing the moments around me. Keeps me from holding on to those I love and encouraging them. Keeps me from seizing the moment and the opportunities that God sets before me. It keeps me from seeing or feeling God's presence. Though fear never completely disappears, the good news is it can be silenced. And that it does not have to drive the car. We can, by the grace of God, revoke fear's license. And the greatest enemy to fear is holy boldness. Not boldness, because boldness can be really stupid and it can be an overcompensation for fear. Have you ever tried to overcompensate from fear and just made a mess out of everything? Okay, then you're better than I am. But there are those times that I have tried to compensate for my fear. So I speak a little louder than I should. I act a little sillier than I should because I'm afraid. In chapter 14 of Acts, we observe the holy boldness of Paul and Barnabas. They've been expelled from Antioch of Pisidia by unbelieving Jews, 
devout and prominent women and chief men. In other words, it was the notables in the city that expelled them. They were people of influence, people of prominence that drove them from the city. That can be so intimidating when you know that people in, in very high places, influential places, want you out of town. They're the ones who drive you out. It's enough to make you want to go home and lick your wounds or say, you know what, enough of this or the Lord must not be leading, or I must be in the wrong, or I need to protect myself. But that was not the way with Paul and Barnabas. They went into Iconium. They kept going. There was no thought in their mind of going back to Antioch in Syria yet. At the end of chapter 14, we're told that they did not go back until they completed the work that the Lord had given them. And they went right into the Jewish synagogue, the place that in Antioch of Pisidia had caused the most trouble. That's the very place. They went through trying, let's try this synagogue. You're like, no, no, no. Why don't you try the square in town? Someplace different. Maybe that didn't work so well for you the last time. But what do these men do? They go right back into the synagogue. They're not about to let fear dictate to them what they will and won't do. When Satan was tempting Jesus, he took him to the pinnacle of the temple. And he said, throw yourself off of here so that others can see it and they'll know then that there is divine strength with you. And Jesus said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. In other words, I'm not controlling God. He's in control of me. I'm not trying to seize the authority of God. I am leaving that authority with God. These men go back into the very, very place. Fear will not be the authority in their lives. Fear will not be the dictator of what they do or what they don't do. God will be the only dictator in their lives. So as they go into Iconium, we're taught that certain hostile Jews sought to poison the minds against Paul and Barnabas. And yet even there, God gave them great success and multitudes turned to Jesus. And in light of the hostility, we're told that Paul and Barnabas stayed there a long time. Again, fear, hostility, threats, none of these things were going to become the dictators or the controllers of Paul and Barnabas. They yielded only to the authority of Jesus Christ. So we're told that Paul and Barnabas were even more determined to stay and establish the new believers in the word of God's grace. There they performed signs and wonders. In other words, they did not lay low. They allowed themselves to be displayed for Jesus. You see, fear would say, you know what? Just lay low. Okay, if you're going to go into the synagogues, just be cool about it. Just give like a a very easy presentation of the gospel, be very politically correct, you know, very, very peace-loving, don't upset anybody. 
don't bring attention to yourself or even maybe take a break and, and let people come to you. Don't go out to them. Don't reach out. Let people come to you. That's a natural response, isn't that? To persecution, to hurt, that's the natural response. But what we're seeing in Paul and Barnabas is nothing natural. Everything with these men is supernatural. We're told, again, that a violent attempt came upon Paul and Barnabas. Men rose up and they wanted to stone Paul and Barnabas. This was the attention that was known. You know, sometimes I find that threats are even worse than the actuality. Have you found that? It's the threats. David said in the Psalms, God, deliver me from the fear of my enemies. I love how he says, deliver me from the fear of my enemies. Not deliver me from my enemies, but deliver me from the fear of my enemies. Sometimes the fear of our enemies can be worse than our enemies. It's the fear that keeps you up at night. It's the fear that, you know, puts all the um, cortisone in your, or whatever, cortisol in your system, you know, the stress hormone. It's the fear that makes your heart pump faster. It's, it's the fear that raises your blood pressure. It's the fear. It's not the enemies. It's the fear of the enemies. So now here's threats coming at them. And they just move on. They flee to the next town. I love this holy boldness of knowing when to leave and when to stay too. Because you know these are apostles. They fled. They said, you know what? Let's get out of here. Let's get out of here quick. And God showed them the way. And yet here they are. They didn't sail back. They didn't seek protection. Paul didn't let his Roman citizenship be known like, hey, it's not right that they're stoning and they're plotting against me. I have rights, you know. But they simply moved on as Jesus had instructed them in Mark 6, 11. They moved on. They went to Lystra. No vacations, no hiding out. And it's there in Lystra, again, Paul is not about to lay low. He sees a crippled man, And he knows by the spirit of the Lord that this man has been crippled since his birth. But he also senses that this cripple has the faith to be healed. What does that mean, faith? I believe it's that same faith that Cornelius had to be baptized in the Holy Spirit, to be saved. Next week, we'll find that Peter will stand up and say that the Gentiles had their hearts purified by faith. So Peter looking at this cripple saying, you know what? He has got the faith. He believes in Jesus. You see, faith is the gateway to all that God has for us. It opens up realms of possibility. It opens doors that were formerly closed. It makes all things possible. It makes forgiveness, new chances, new lives, transformations. All of this healing becomes possible by simply believing in Jesus, who he is and what he has done. That is faith. It's not faith in faith. It's not faith like, oh, I believe, 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 I believe. That does nothing. I've tried it. 
It's not my power to muster up faith. It's not my gullibility. You know, like, I believe. It's, it's none of those things. It is simply the placement of faith in Jesus Christ. Once I believe in Jesus, who he is, and what God has done through Christ, that's when the impossible becomes possible. So Paul looks at this lame man and he says, stand up. And we're told that the man stands up straight and he begins not just to walk, but to leap. Isn't that amazing? Not just to walk. You know, when people uh, are able to walk again after a long illness or after uh, nerve damage, have you ever noticed how they have to be retrained? They have to start with those bars and they have to take these steps and they literally have to learn to walk just like a baby. But look at this instantaneous healing. This man immediately knows how to walk. Immediately, his feet work. And not only does he know how to walk, he begins to leap. Just taking these great strides through the air, like, look at this. All of a sudden, my little grandsound writer was like, Grandma, he's a real tough guy. He's seven. It's tough. You know, Grandma, look at this. And so he starts galloping across the room. I'm like, wow, yeah, now look at this. And he starts skipping. It's like, wow, Ryder, okay, now watch this. And he hops on one foot. Then he hops on the other foot. I just can do that. You know, and you're like, impressive. But you know, he's been doing that since he was like one. But this man, having never walked before, is suddenly leaping. And the crowd takes notice of it. Again, Paul is not laying low. The crowd's attention is drawn on this act. And the, the people, having never seen a miracle before, having never seen this display of power before, assume that the gods have come down and are walking among men. And they begin to shout it out. They call Barnabas Zeus, because he's quieter than Paul. And they call Paul Hermes, or the messenger God, the one who talks and brings the messages of the gods to men. Now, Zeus was a very mercurial God. He was always changing his attitude and his, he was temperamental and he was, he was lecherous. He was always lusting after women. He was very arbitrary. He, he could like you or dislike you. There was no consistency with him. With Hermes, he was the same. He was arbitrary. He was temperamental. He would play tricks on people. It was said that he set the boundaries and the markers, and you had to plead for his mercy whenever you traveled, because if he got mad at you, anything was possible on the road. These were gods that had to be appeased. Not, not just served. These were gods that couldn't be loved, that couldn't be trusted. And so what you see is the people, the multitude is scared of this power because all they know of power is that it's not safe. It cannot be understood. It cannot be embraced. And so the people begin to shout out and, and this whole chaotic scene ensues. 
and the priest from the temple of Zeus comes running. Can you just see it? With all these garlands and with this oxen. You're like, oh, time for a sacrifice. Gotta appease the gods. Gotta appease the gods. This town is scared. They are in turmoil. Because if they don't appease these gods, what will the next hour bring forth? What will the gods do to them if they don't show thanks, if they don't honor, if they don't do things in the right way? And so the people in Lystra are scared. And and this man comes out. But Paul and Barnabas, looking on this scene, they are grieved. They are grieved to think that men would attribute this glory, this healing, this faith, to pagan deities that don't even exist, vain things. They're grieved to think that these people in Lystra think that Paul and Barnabas have this in themselves. Paul and Barnabas will not take the perks. They're like, no, 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 no. Now, safety would be like, okay, go ahead and worship me. Then I'll tell you about Jesus. Once you think I'm really tough and you know I'm scary and you've got some reverence for me. But no, Paul and Barnabas will not let this city think that they are any more than what they are. In fact, we're told that Paul and Barnabas begin to tear their clothes, run in the midst of the multitude, saying, we are men with like natures, same as you. And we are preaching to you that these things, these sacrifices to Zeus and Hermes, are the very vain things that you need to turn away from and serve the living God who made heaven and earth and all things that are in them. We've got a greater reality that we want to bring you into. They refused to let the crowd worship them, though it would have set them apart, might have even protected them. And then when Jews from Antioch and Iconium arrived, these Jews that followed Paul and Barnabas, because they hated the message. They hated the fact that Gentiles were being saved and their lives transformed. They came to Lystra and they were able to persuade the multitude against Paul. A fickle multitude. One moment willing to worship them because of the greatness of the miracle and the next wanting to kill them, wanting to drive them out. I believe this was fear-based. I believe that fear can be absolutely dangerous. I'm going to tell you something about me. When it comes to bugs, I'm an overkiller. It's not good enough just to smash the spider. I have to make sure that he cannot live again. That he is torn limb from limb and he will not scare any other human being. Ever, 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 ever. You know, my boys... They also had the overkill instinct. But you know what they used to do? They used to like to kill bugs and leave them there, you know, on the walls. And I said, you boys, you need to clean up afterwards. I remember Brayden saying to me, Mom, that's for the other bugs. I want them to see what happened to their friend and just stay out of here. You know, fear can make us like... You know, we can't just hit the spider and flush him away. No, no, we have to like, you know, squish, death, dismemberment. 
You know, we want all this. We want to make sure that that thing cannot harm us, cannot bring any harm to us, that there's not a chance in the world that that thing will come back and go, Spider-Man, Spider-Man. Yeah, we don't know. It's over forever for this one. It's gone. And that's what fear does. Fear wants to just destroy, to get something completely gone. Fear's not content to imprison or to put aside or to ignore, fear has to destroy any opponents. And this is what I think we're seeing. This is fear. And it's fear juxtaposed against the holy boldness of Paul and Barnabas. And fear takes up stones and wants to not only stone Paul, not only destroy Paul, but then they drag him out of the city. They don't even want him in the city. They want to get rid of him. But as the scripture tells us, that the disciples surrounded Paul. There they are. They're surrounding Paul outside the city. He he has been out of their reach, so to speak. They haven't been able to protect him or insulate him. The crowd has gotten to them. They've stoned him. Now they've dragged him out of the city and left him for dead. And now the disciples surround him. And what happens to Paul? He jumps up. Hey, guys, that was kind of cool. You ought to try it. Man, you wouldn't believe the things I saw and heard while I was down there on the ground. Whoa. No, I don't think, uh, I can't tell you. You got to wait till you get to heaven. And uh, yeah, now I kind of got this angel to buffet me because uh, the revelation is so glorious of what happened. You see, a man like that, that you stone and you put him down, and what happens? He has a revelation of heaven. He sees glory. That man is only emboldened, only emboldened. So this is the worst that fear can do. This is the absolute worst. You stone me, you kill me, and the worst thing that happens is I get heaven. I get absolute glory. Jesus said, do not fear them that can kill the body. And then they've lost all their power. That's it. That's the last stand of men. They can do no more after that. He said, but fear him who has the power to constrain your soul to heaven or hell. But then he says, but you know what? When you're fearing God, all of a sudden you're not fearing anyone. That's holy boldness. Because you recognize that God has counted the very hairs on your head. That it's God's good pleasure to give you the kingdom of heaven. To give you all you need while you are on earth. And then to take you into glory. No wonder Paul could say, for me to live, for me to live is Christ. And to die is gain. I'm in a win-win situation. So when Paul rises up, what does he do? He goes right back into the very city that stoned him. Can you imagine those people? It's like that spider rising again. You know, ah, he's back. How could that be? We, we stoned this guy. We dragged him out of the city. And now here he is right back into the city, strengthening, strengthening the disciples there. He goes on after that to Derby with Barnabas, undeterred by the stoning, undeterred by the angry Jews following them from place to place. 
and they make many disciples there also in Derby. Talk about boldness. Now, when you know that whoever gets saved is going to have to go through such tribulation, sometimes you think, oh, you know, if, if this Muslim accepts Jesus, their whole family is going to turn against them. If this Jew accepts Jesus, their whole family is going to turn against them. I remember when Debbie Kerner, um, she was also Charity Church Mouse later, when she accepted the Lord, her family had a funeral for her, her Jewish family. And they said, you are dead to us. You know, she thought that was really ironic because when she was young, they sent her to a convent for school, this Jewish girl in a convent for her schooling. And yet when she really came to know Jesus Christ, they had a funeral saying, "Mm -mm, you're dead to us. And sometimes we're, we're tempted to draw back from holy boldness because of the price that those that we are giving the gospel to will have to pay for the gospel. This was the dilemma that Lilius Trotter had in the late 1800s. She was a missionary to Tangiers, a Muslim country. She had gone there with some friends and every person that they led to Jesus Christ was murdered. Can you imagine that? Every single person, they were either poisoned or um, knifed or mugged, but in some way they were killed because of the gospel. And at one point she really went to the, uh, had a dilemma about that. And she went to the Lord and she said, Lord, is it right? And she said, the Lord spoke to her heart and said, oh, Lilius, if you could see them glorified in my presence, they would have suffered anyway. They would have suffered. And they were under the oppression of the enemy and of their family. And I freed them on earth. And then I freed them to come right to glory with me. It was an emancipation, not a murder. And she received holy boldness to proclaim even more powerfully the news of Jesus Christ. She wrote these incredible um, parables called the parable of the sower, the parable of the seed. Um, They're these beautifully illustrated books And the Muslim culture embraced them and loved them because of the parable form in which she wrote. And many, many came to know Jesus Christ. But again, when you know that somebody is going to suffer because of their adherence to Jesus Christ, that could make you afraid. That could make you draw back. But not Paul and Barnabas. They knew the power of the gospel. And now Paul knows the glory and reality of heaven, the place that we are all through faith in Jesus Christ destined to. So after Derby, Paul and Barnabas decide to go visit all the churches and all the brethren that were established in all the places they were driven out, all the places they were persecuted. They go back to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch and Pisidia. And there they strengthen the souls of the brethren. And how? What is one of the ways that they strengthen the brethren? We're told that they exhort them. They encourage them. Continue in the faith. Again, faith is the ticket to all the possibilities. Faith is the ticket to healing, transformation, glory. Faith is the ticket to all the riches that are in Christ Jesus. And faith is the ultimate ticket to heaven and to glory where there is no sorrow and no pain. 
but just inexpressible joy and glory forevermore. It is. It is through faith. So they strengthen the souls of the brethren to continue in faith. And they tell them, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. In other words, this is par for the course. This is what you can expect. But look at us. We have made it through. We have triumphed. June Hesterly was um, one time telling this, this story She and her husband decided to accompany this man named Keith Ritter um, up into the hills of China to visit these Lisu people, which lived very primitively. They lived in huts. Now, if you know June Hester Lee, she is a germaphobic. She's a woman who vacuums her house every night because she likes to see it all in nice rows. And she said to herself, okay, I can do this. Because Sue, Keith's wife, has done it, and she's more of a germaphobic than I am. And if Sue can do this, I can do this. So June and Jim have to ride on the back of a truck that is overly crowded with people, you know, standing on these plywood boards as they make this rickety ride up into the hills of China. The roads are so scary, she thinks the man's gonna drive off the side of the cliff. The truck stalls out more than once. The smells are just unbearable, but she keeps saying to herself, Sue did this, Sue did this. I can do it too. She gets up. For one week, she has to find a place where you dig a hole and find this place Privacy is almost impossible because even the floorboards have holes in between. There are bats in the rafter. There's all sorts of little vermin running around every place. And the way you take your shower is just this this kind of this stall that you pour water over yourself every morning. And it's cold. But she keeps saying, look, it's only a week and Sue has done this. So when the week is done, June is so relieved, and they take this rickety truck back. And the next day, she runs into Sue, and she said, Sue, I just want you to know you're my inspiration. And Sue said, how is that? She said, well, while I was sleeping with that vermin on those floorboards, while I was taking that shower, as I was having to make my way into the jungle to do elimination, as I was around those people with the lice in their hair and all the the smells. I kept thinking, Sue can do this. I can do this. And Sue said, June, I can't do it. I've never done it. When Keith goes up there, I stay in a hotel right down the mountain. (laughs) But you know, Paul and Barnabas were saying, we can do it. We have done it. You can do it too. Again, we're men with like natures. We have done it. You can do it. This is par for the course. But you know, let me say this. Tribulation and hardship are par for earth. No wonder Jesus, David said, thy loving kindness is better than life. Would you agree with me that life is hard? Life is hard for everybody, regardless of where you live. Life is hard and presents us with difficulties. Wherever there are taxes, life is hard. Wherever there is a Gestapo or an IRS, life is going to be difficult. 
I hate this time of year. I want to look forward to the new year, but all I can think is, I have to try to organize my taxes. I don't even do my taxes. I send them to my friend. But I still, oh, never mind. Moving on. Life is hard. And there's hardships in life. But you see, when you know Jesus, we have three advantages. One is we have the advantage that Jesus is with us in every hardship. That's our advantage over people who go through hardship. We have Jesus. We have an advocate. We have a friend walking beside us. Secondly, we have purpose. We're going to get something out of this trial. We're going to get something on earth, a revelation, strength, character, knowledge. Something is going to happen. We're going to help others. We're going to have purpose in this, and we're going to have a heavenly reward. There's a multitude of purposes that God will make our suffering count. He will always make it count. And finally, God will deliver us. He will always, always deliver us. Please answer that. They're wondering if you're still alive. (laughs) So then they, they prayed. They appointed elders in every city. Those who would lead and stand steadfast. They were looking for men who could stand up to the persecution. Men who could endure. Men of character. Next, they prayed with fasting for these churches and for these men. Transferring that apostolic authority. And they commended these men to the Lord in whom they had believed. They put them in the safekeeping of the Lord. Oh, when you're afraid for somebody, it's the best thing to put them in the safekeeping of the Lord. Jesus said, nothing can remove anyone from my grasp, from my hold. I loved putting my children, and I still do, into the hands of the Lord. I have a son and daughter that live in New York with grandchildren. I have another son who lives in Santa Rosa. And I have a daughter. My son-in-law just got um, bitten by a black widow. You know, I mean, what do you do? I, you know, you can, you can easily pry my grasp, but you can't get away from the grasp of Jesus Christ. God protects when we cannot protect. God works when we cannot work. There's so many things that we can't see, but God sees and he's always at work. You know, I don't know why I think I'm so responsible for everybody because nothing I do ever works. I can't even heal myself of the flu or a cold. I have done the oregano oil in the water, the zinc with the vitamin C, the chicken soup till it's coming out my ears, the grape juice. And then Brian's been buying me this fresh ginger pineapple stuff that's, oh, it makes, it makes smoke come out your ears. It's horrid. I can't, I can't even heal myself. I can't even drive germs out of my body. I can't fend off germs, even though I'm washing my hands, even though I'm doing all these precautions. I don't have, I can't. And yet I think I'm going to hold somebody. As long as I'm there, you're totally safe. No way. I've got to commend you to him who is able to keep you from falling. And make you stand faultless before his throne with glory. Only Jesus Christ can do that. So Paul knowingly and Barnabas, they commended them to the grace of the Lord. And then, and only then, did they return to Antioch in Syria. 
Now, we'd like to think that Paul and Barnabas boldness was legendary, that these were more than mere men. No, we're talking Paul. We're talking Barnabas. But as somebody was saying in leaders meeting today, Paul said of himself to the Corinthians, I know that I was weak and trembling around you. And you thought, this little weakling is going to tell us about the gospel? These were men, as they said, with natures like other men. They were men who were weak. They were men who absolutely needed Jesus. They were just like the men in Lystra, no better. As John Bunyan once wrote, there but for the grace of God go I. They would have been worshiping those vain things. They would have been running with garlands and oxen. Were it not, were it not for Jesus Christ. So what was the secret of their holy boldness? Well, their secret can be our secret. Their source of boldness can be our source of boldness because there are three things that we see in this chapter. The Paul and Barnabas advantage, so to speak. And one is that they knew their God. Two is that they were under the authority of Jesus Christ. And three was that they were commended to the grace of God. I was at a wedding and I was sitting next to a friend of mine and I was talking to her about the power of a faith in the Christian life and just how I had been experiencing that and what I had been seeing God do. And she looked at me and she had tears in her eyes. And this was one of the most extraordinary godly women I knew. I absolutely adore this woman. God has used her with the gift of hospitality and she is just one of those saints in the church. And she looked at me and she said, Cheryl, I need more boldness. I just lately have just been racked with fears and, and tears came into her eyes. And, and she looked at me in desperation And I looked at her and I said, oh, Mary, it's so simple. You just need to know Jesus better. You don't have to drum up faith. You don't have to condemn or or flagellate yourself for not having enough faith. There's no reason to be condemned here. You can't go out there and just start pumping iron to get more faith. The secret is to know your God. In Daniel, it said that the people who knew their God carried out great exploits in his name. The secret is knowing their God. It's to know the character of our God, to know that he is caring and compassionate and concerned. You see, we don't serve a God like Zeus or a God like Hermes who get upset, who can't be trusted, who are lustful or greedy or angry or can be upset or must be appeased. That's not our God. We serve the God that we see in the gospels displayed in Jesus Christ. As it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that in Christ, we see the face of God. In Christ, we see all that God is, all that God does, and his disposition towards us. 
I was just reading in Matthew chapter 15 this morning where Jesus absolutely refused to let the multitude go away hungry. The disciples are like, Lord, there's too many of them. Send them away. And Jesus said, no, you feed them. We're going to make this happen. I am not going to let those people go away and faint on the road. I am here for them. We serve a God that is compassionate and cares about the multitude. But we serve a God that he didn't berate the disciples. What are you guys thinking? Sending the multitude away. You know, here I call you guys. I'm with you guys. I've shown you miracles. And I have to send him away. Send him away. He's not like that. He's like, guys, just stay with me. Just stay with me. Don't you love that phrase? Just stay with me. And yet we're like, oh, God, forgive me for not believing in you, Mom. Shame on you. Shame on you. You know, we are always, we're women, right? So we beat ourselves up. You know, we have like a wooden spoon in every room just to hit ourselves when we're stupid. This is not our God. This is not our God. Our God, Jesus, is so patient. He's so concerned. He's so loving. He doesn't, you know, when you see Jesus rebuking their unbelief, he's like, oh, you have little faith. Oh, you have little faith. He's not like, shame on you. Have faith. He's like, oh, you have little faith. If you just really believed in me, if you just really knew me, you could walk on water. You could do these things. What you need, what you need is to know your God. Not only to know he loves you, he absolutely loves you with an intensity that your God cares about you, that he's aware of everything that you're going through, that your God will not let you fall. He will not let you be destroyed. He will not give you over to the will of the enemies or the will of Satan. Satan asked for Peter by name. And man, if there was a disciple I might have given up, might have been Peter. You want that one? As long as I can keep the other 10, you can have Judas and Peter. Let's make a deal. No. Jesus wouldn't let go of Peter. Absolutely not. I don't care if he denied me three times. Satan, you may not have this one. I'm going to pray for this one that his faith will not fail. I'm going to cover this one and I'm going to restore this one. And this one, this one I'm going to use for my glory. And when he is restored, he's going to strengthen the brethren. That's our God. That's the God we serve. Not one that wants to see you destroyed or punished, but one that wants to see you restored, that wants to see you protected, that wants to see you make it through. That's our God. He's compassionate, caring, concerned. He's aware of what we're going through. He's got your back. As I was traveling up to um, Santa Rosa, a seven-hour drive that I was able to do in eight hours. Tells you a lot about my driving. I will not speed. So anyway, I'm getting passed by semi-trucks and trucks that are carrying like cows. Kind of sad. And hey, but you know, as I'm as I'm driving, um, I stop to get gas, and I'm in a borrowed car, and it's a nice car. And some friends of mine said, you know, we want you to be safe. We want you to use our car, which was really nice. And there are these guys who start eyeing the car, and they look scary, and they start walking over to me. And right at that moment, Brian calls, and I said, Brian, pray, pray for the FBI to find me pray. And I'm saying it really loudly because they're coming over to me and they look menacing and they're coming over and they've got this look and they're looking at each other. 
And Brian goes, get in the car. And I'm like, I am trying. But you know when you're trying to rush and you fumble everything? I'm dropping the hose. I'm going, oh, God, help me. And I'm trying to slam the thing. And I'm running around to the car door. And it's not opening. you're like, I'm not scared of you at all. You know? And I'm jumping in the car. And I'm like, how do you lock the doors? It's not my car. Finally, I find the door lock, and they're almost at the car now. I kid you not. They're like inches away from the car. And I'm like, where do the keys go? And I'm uh, trying to fumble with my seatbelt. I'm like, forget the seatbelt. And Brian's like, hit the gas, Cheryl. I'm like, yes, gas. I know it's when I'm hitting the brake. And I'm like, finally, I hit the gas. And I'm, I'm not kidding. They're right at my window. And I go out of the gas station. And I'm like getting on the freeway, putting on my seatbelt. And the Lord just speaks to me and said, Cheryl, I had you covered. I had you covered the entire time. Remember, you're the woman who flooded your house. You're the woman who left the garage door open all night for any burglars who wanted to come by and then left your purse as a sacrifice for them on the front seat of the car. That's you, Cheryl. I have your back, Cheryl. I am watching over you. Cheryl, you shopped at Target and used your debit card. That information is out there. (laughs) I am always so vulnerable. I mean, like I could really protect myself. I am always vulnerable. Even when I think I'm not vulnerable, I am vulnerable. But I've got a God who is always protecting me, who is always watching over me, and not me, you do. And that, when we understand, when we catch on to this, that will give us holy boldness. He's got you covered. He has got you covered. But not only that, Paul knew God's power, the power to transform lives. Paul knew the power of God to take angry Jews and make them his servant. Maybe that's why Paul was not bothered by the Iconian angry Jews or the Antioch angry Jews or the Lystra angry Jews. I wonder if he looked at him and said, I was just like you. Yeah, I know the feeling. Yep. I did exactly what you did. And look at me now. Look what God has done. He never lost faith in what God could do because he knew what God had done in his own life. It was his own testimony. As he says in 1 Timothy 1, verses 12. Now unto the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. God is powerful. God is transforming. He is the God that is able to make the lame not only walk, but leap. He is the God who was able to raise Paul up from the dead after being stoned and dragged out of the city and through that give him a revelation of heaven. But they also knew God as the creator of all things, creator of earth and everything in it, creator of the oceans and everything in it. God is over all. He's the creator of virtue. He's the creator of the situations. God created the oceans. He created the hearts of men. He's over all. He's absolutely over all, and there is no need to fear. So they knew their God. They knew the patience of their God, that he would strive with men, that his love for mankind would go the extra mile. In bygone days, he allowed nations to walk in their own ways, but now he has sent his Savior, and he is striving with all men to know his Son. He is the God 
who is provisional, who provides all things for believers and unbelievers, rain from heaven, fruit and harvest, food, gladness, who fills hearts. You know, the world talks about love. Where did they get the concept of love and fidelity and kindness? Those virtues are only found in Jesus Christ. There is no other place for those virtues, but in God, in Christ alone. But not only that, secondly, Paul and Barnabas were under the authority of Jesus Christ. Remember how in Acts 13, God had spoken through the Holy Spirit and said, now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work which I have called them. God doesn't give us unbridled power. Have you noticed that? You know, I think of those uh, movies, Almighty God, and you see what men would do with, I never watched the movie, I just saw the commercial, it was bad enough. But you see what men wanna do with unbridled power, the advantage they wanna take on others. Yes, men with unbridled power would act like Zeus. They would act like Hermes. God doesn't give unlimited power. God gives his authority. Our power is only under the authority of Jesus Christ. Remember John and James, they wanted simple power. And what did they want to do with that power? They wanted to destroy men's lives. They said, Lord, can we call down fire from heaven and just consume this Samaritan town that was rejecting you? And Jesus said, you do not know what spirit you are of. The son of man did not come to destroy, but to save. God or Jesus gives us his authority and it's in the authority of Jesus. What does that mean? It means when we are in obedience and submission to Jesus Christ, we have power. It is only in his will, following his directives, that we have this authority, that we have this power, that we have this prosperity, that we have this success. In Matthew chapter 10, we're told Jesus gave his disciples authority over unclean spirits, all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease. He said, go in my name. You see, it's the name, it's the person of Jesus Christ where our authority is. In Matthew chapter eight, the centurion's servant was healed because the centurion acknowledged that Christ was under the authority of God. And under that authority, Christ has his power. Paul said it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He said, you have women under the authority of their husbands, under the authority of Christ, under the authority of God. It's not about equality. It's about authority. My authority is being Mrs. Brian Broderson or Pastor Brian's wife. I have authority in that. You take me out of that authority, nobody will listen to me, not even kitties. It's like crazy. But under that authority, I have authority. When we're under the authority of Jesus Christ, we have the authority of Christ because we're walking in obedience. And this was the authority that Paul and Barnabas had, holy boldness, not to do their will, but to accomplish the work for which God had sent them. As long as they were in the work for which God had sent them, they had holy boldness. Outside of that work, no boldness. In that work, divine boldness. 
Jesus said in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, and you know the scripture, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the earth. Under the authority of Jesus, we have his presence, a companion, comfort, confirmation, and we are able to convince. And so under the authority of Jesus, Paul and Barnabas went where he led, preached what he had done, encouraged believers in his word, and appointed elders and strengthened the souls of the disciples. Finally, Paul and Barnabas knew the grace of God. Grace, as you know, is God's unmerited favor. But it's God's unmerited favor manifested in our lives in a myriad of ways. It is God's manifestation of blessing, protection, and prosperity. We're told that multitudes were coming to know Jesus, the gospel, through Paul and Barnabas. This is God's grace. Not that Paul and Barnabas were anything or could do this, but they were leaning into the grace of God. They were commended to that grace by the believers in Antioch of Syria. And it was to this grace that they commended the believers in every city because they understood that grace was sufficient for all things. In 2 Corinthians 9, 8, Paul said, God is able to make all grace abound to you so that you having sufficiency for all things. That's what grace does. It makes us up to the task. We have everything we need by grace. Everything. Everything we need. It doesn't matter about me. It doesn't matter if I've got the strength, if I've got the ability, if I've got the right word. Grace will come in and it will do it all. In fact, Paul so knew God's grace in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. God revealed to him that this grace is actually made perfect in our weakness. When we have it all together, when we're doing everything right, we don't have the opportunity to see God's grace in action. But when we have deficit, when we have deficiency, then all of a sudden we can see God's grace in its fullness doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And not only could we, they commend people to God's grace, here is grace. This is able to make you sufficient for all things. God's grace will supply everything you need in every single situation. God's grace is enough. Grace and nothing else does it. Grace would allow believers to continue in the faith, to persevere through tribulation. It was grace that drove Paul and Barnabas from town to town without flinching at past persecutions. It was grace that raised Paul up and sent him back into the same city that stoned and dragged him out of that city. It was grace that returned to every city where they had been persecuted to strengthen the souls of the disciples there. Paul and Barnabas themselves had been commended to this grace for the work of God. And according to verse 26 of Acts chapter 14, because of this grace, they completed the work that God had sent them to. It is in God's grace that we will accomplish the will of God. 
not in our strength because we are not sufficient for the task. We are not worthy of the call in our lives. We are not worthy of God's goodness. We don't have the talent, the skill, the education as if education would prepare you for life. We don't have what is needed, but God's grace has everything. Every God's grace is ready for any eventuality. It's better than your purse. It's got everything you need. You forgot the Emory board, but God's grace has got it. Everything that you possibly need. Holy boldness is not for just the spiritually elite. It is for anyone and everyone who will know their God, his personality, his greatness expressed through his word, his plans, and his goodness, his care. It is for anyone who will come under the authority of Jesus Christ, who will say, not my will, but his will, who will say, I was bought with a price and my body is for the glory of God and not for my own glory. And finally, it's for anybody who is commended or absolutely dependent on the grace of God for life. It is for those who know that without him, I can do nothing, but through his grace, all things are possible. Do you desire this holy boldness? We just need to know our God. That's that's it. We just need to draw near to our God and he will draw near to us. We just need to walk in obedience with him. And we just need to open up our arms wide to the grace that is ours through Christ Jesus. Let's go ahead and stand up. I'm going to commend you all to the grace of God. Lord, I pray for my sisters right here. Oh, Lord, we thank you that your grace is enough. Lord, I pray that you would open up our hearts and our minds, Lord, that we might have a greater understanding of the God we serve. Lord, that we might know you, that we might, Lord, understand your power, your authority, your grace, your goodness, your concern, your love. Lord, that we would understand the height, the depth, the love that you have for us and the concern. Lord, that we would know that we know that you've got our back. <laughs> you've, got, you've gone before us. You've hedged us about. Lord, that we might know that, that we might know your power. Lord, open up our hearts and our minds to know you. Lord, I pray that you would give us the authority of obedience to you. Lord, that you would help us to choose your ways above our own ways, God, that we might have this holy boldness, that we might walk in the authority of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we understand that we need your grace more than anything, Lord. We need that strength in our weakness. Lord, may we admit freely every deficit that we might be able to exchange the immaterial, the irrelevant, the zinc and vitamin C and everything that doesn't work for a cold and receive, Lord, the grace that is able to raise us up, able to do for us and for others what nothing else can do. Lord, I commend my sisters to the grace of God, Lord, that they might know it, that they might dance and revel in it, that they might be blessed by it. We ask these things in Jesus' holy, precious, great name of authority. Amen.